Father, we come to you, the holy God of the universe, the consuming fire. Our world has trivialized your name and have put it in the realm of blasphemy, profanity. The church at times has failed to exalt your name and understand the implications. And I must confess there's times even when I relegate you to almost an equal and you are the sovereign God and we bend our knee before you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. And as we go to the text this morning, we ask that you would guide us as we go to it. Lord, speak to us as you promise you will through your holy written word, that which you have breathed and given to us. And we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 12. If you've just joined us, we are journeying through the gospel of Luke. We took a bit of a summer break and walked through the life of Moses and we're back into the Gospel of Luke, and they fit so very well together as we've already seen. So Luke chapter 12. There are few things all Americans agree on these days, wouldn't you say? There is one, though, that is seldom debated, and that is no one likes a hypocrite. In fact, in Harvard Business School, in a recent study, they found that while people may not like a liar, hypocrites are seen as far worse. And I would say, well, there is one thing that's worse than uh, not liking a hypocrite, it's being called one. <laughs> and Jesus, as he faces the religious leaders, we saw this in chapter 11, and it escalates his rhetoric against them. In fact, it's so strong, I mean, he calls them whitewashed tombs and yet inside your decay he, he he labels them as that which has stranded and and sideswiped what is true and and on he goes it's no wonder at the end of chapter 11 the religious rulers it says they began to oppose him bitterly look at verse 53 of chapter 11 and to ask him hostile questions about many things plotting against him to catch him in something he might say it, the, the gloves are off. They've got to trap this Jesus. They've got to take care of him. And we're going to see why here in chapter 12. But Jesus is going to go after that hypocrisy. And this sermon I've titled The Dangerous Disease of, Hypo of Hypocrisy because he's going to also give some strong words to those followers. And so let's look at this. Let's look at verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, while many thousands of the crowd had gathered and there's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> the religious rulers, especially the Pharisees, they have the popular vote. That's where they have their power base. Jesus is a threat. For the Sadducees, another Jewish sect in the first century, their power is in their allegiance with Rome, and Jesus is threatening that as well. And it says that many of the, the crowd, thousands were gathering. They, in fact, they were trampling one another just to get to Jesus. And Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. The, chapter 11 is dedicated primarily to the religious rulers. And now he goes, he says to the disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed and nothing is secret that will not be made known. So then whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you've whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after the killing, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. In fact, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before God's angels. But the one who, desire, who denies me before men will be denied before God's angels. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, the title Jesus uses most frequently of himself, he says will be forgiven. But the person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. But when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities, do not worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you must say. Let's unpack this, this passage and look at the diagnosis of hypocrisy. Again, the problem, problem is thousands are gathering. This is a threat to the religious rulers. In addition, those thousands just heard Jesus lacerate the religious rulers. I mean, they, they, no wonder they're out for blood, right? And, and Jesus says, beware of their hypocrisy. Verse 1, he says to the crowd, hypocrisy in the Greek, the, the meaning here is, is that who is an actor. <laughs> yeah, we won't go too far down that road. But wanting, attempting to impress an, another by hiding who they really are. The term not only can mean deliberate uh, pretense, but it also can be re rendered inconsistent. And according to Lucan scholar Howard Marshall in his commentary, he highlights two ways it's inconsistent. First of all, hypocrisy can be between a person's professed desire to please God and a behavior that's inconsistent. So in other words, they try, but they're not living it. A second way it can be inconsistent is just the opposite. A person isn't trying at all. In fact, they're trying to hide their evil intentions and they disguise it in appearance of piety or virtue, which is in fact intended to secure the wrong end, which may include gaining human applause rather than giving glory to God. In other words, he says, be careful because this religious group is looking to have approval from men and women. That's what they're desiring. In all their religiosity, it's disguising something very wretched, rancid. And the dangers of hypocrisy, clearly the danger with hypocrisy is that it's much easier to detect in others. <laughs> Financial Times in 2020, uh, August, had an article about hypocrisy. It said, we are more motivated to rationalize our own inconsistent actions than those of others. And it's easier to do so because we have a greater insight into what lies behind them and a greater desire to excuse ourselves. Oops. 
And so the danger of hypocrisy, one, is that it's easier to detect than others. And secondly, it's very good, hypocrisy is very good at disguising itself and going undetected. John Milton in Paradise Lost wrote, neither men nor angels can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible. But, he says, it can only be discerned by one that is God. <laughs> and so Jesus, in his warning to the disciples about these religious rulers, he said, watch out for their hypocrisy, and he equates it with yeast. Did you catch that? Uh, why yeast? Well, obviously a little bit has an enormous impact I think a recipe normally is half a teaspoon for a cup of flour. Don't take me as gospel truth, but uh, that's what I hear. Uh, my wife's the cook. Secondly, it affects the entire dough, doesn't it? Yeast, good or bad. Uh, and interestingly, through Scripture, yeast is always used in an analogy for evil. Uh, they must have been gluten-free. I don't know, right? <laughs> and yeast is subtle. It, it, it's it's not a big deal, you know, you, but you just wait. You know, we've, you raise those rolls and you go to bed and you forget in the morning, oh my goodness, I forgot to put the rolls in the oven and they're like the size of a, a tire, right? They're huge. And finally, yeast unattended or too much will destroy the dough. And so the context is clear. The religious rulers and their very sins are under the disguise of piety. It's no wonder, despite Jesus' similarity in theological principles with the Pharisees in particular, he has the strongest words against them. They should have been shepherding the flock, these people. Instead, they're wolves dressed up like Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother and missing the whole point. And so the danger is seen and the signs are clear, verse 2, nothing is hidden. The Lord, in the 50-cent word we use in theological circles, he's omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows all that one does, whether it's good or bad. Hypocrisy cannot hide it. I love what Cornelius Plantigan in his book, A Brevary of Sin, says evil has to spend a lot on makeup. <laughs> he says, people want to appear good, though they wish not to do good. There's a constant attempt to explain, justify, rationalize, and scapegoat evil. Ever confront anyone over sin? It's amazing. We're right back in Genesis. Well, it's not my fault, you know. You didn't know. Well, it's been hard. You fill in the blank. The heart of sin, Planigan goes, is rather the persistent refusal to tolerate a sense of sin, to take responsibility for one's own sin, to live with the sorrowful knowledge of it, and to pursue the painful way of repentance. Careful. Our Lord is all-knowing, and he's all-present. And Jesus states, nothing is hidden hypocrisy thinks they might be getting away with it like the religious rulers. And no, 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 the Lord knows. In fact, there will be a day, 1 Corinthians 4 states, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And we see that here, right? It says they will be known. 
verse three, this will be proclaimed. There's a day coming. I mean, Christianity is an apocalyptic religion. We're looking to the end. But be careful. My grandmother used to say, you don't want to be doing that when the Lord returns. <laughs> there is a day coming when you will account, and you're not going to be able to hide it. You might be able to even, uh, I mean, you can hide it even in the court system, but you won't hide this before the Lord. Scholars debate whether verses two and three here are referring to a positive or a negative thing. I mean, think about it. What do we hide? What do you hide? Sins? Mm, yes. Treasures, things that you love. But sometimes you, you, there are those who hide good deeds. They do things they don't want anyone to know about it. And, and why do we hide? Why do we keep things secret? Afraid? Embarrassed? private, wish to give God the glory. There's good and bad in all of this. What is clear is that it will all be revealed. <laughs> it is, and to notice, it's inclusive. There's not, well, some things might be and others won't. No, 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 no. It will all be revealed. It's, and it's also sure. It will be done. This isn't, it might be revealed. No, no, no. Nothing is going to escape the Lord. And that's why in not only our actions in verse 2, but what we say, and this is, Right? This is where it really gets hard in verse 3. Because of whatever you have said in the dark will be revealed. That which is most private will be seen. I'm reminded of during World War II. Remember, well, maybe you don't remember, but you've seen, uh, you've read in the history books, seen pictures of the World War II propaganda, these posters that said, Loose lips sink ships. Right, and that was to keep you from talking about where your son or your father is going off to war because you don't want the enemy to find out. So we gotta keep things tight-lipped. The Brits had a similar slogan in posters. It was careless talk cost lives. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? There have been so many destroyed by things whispered and then later revealed. I remember in college, I flapped my jaw about a guy in the flat, in the unit, and uh, it came out that I had said X, Y, and Z, and he confronted me, rightly so, and it was very embarrassing, and that, that was hard. I'm like, <clears throat> I shouldn't have said it to begin with. And then I thought it was confidential, and it wasn't confidential, and, and, and this is... We're in a far greater war than World War II. We're in a spiritual war, and the stakes are even higher. And the Lord says, be very careful. I know your thoughts. I know what you are saying, and you will be held accountable for this. What's interesting, if you go through Luke's gospel, already several times we've seen the Lord knew the thoughts and here's, the, here's an interesting thing. This is free today, but you want to write this down. Because every time, it's the religious rulers. In the, the scene with the paralytic, Jesus knew that the religious rulers thought he was uttering blasphemy. In the case of the withered hand, the religious rulers wanted to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. And it states in chapter 6, Jesus knew their thoughts. Third, the woman who washed Jesus' feet. And remember the Pharisee, the host? He said, if the man was a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman she is. And it says Jesus knew what he was saying. 
And then a fourth example, which we saw last week, was the demoniac. And they said, by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons has cast out demons. And the text tells us Jesus realized their thoughts. You bunch of hypocrites, you religious rulers. You, you give this veneer that you have it all together and that you're the, the righteous, the frozen chosen. And yet underneath all of this, Jesus knows and it's being revealed time and time again in the narrative. It's very interesting, isn't it? And Jesus says to his disciples, be very careful that you don't take and eat of this yeast that's been percolating, this hypocrisy. Because what you think you're hiding, <laughs> God is going to see and he is going to know. Well, what's the solution to hypocrisy? Jesus gives it to us. He gives us three things. First of all, that is to fear God. We see this in verses four through seven. I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, he says, but instead you need to fear God. He repeats it three times in the text. Fear is mentioned five times. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, who is seen, God is good, but is stated of Aslan, God is not safe. He's terrible and safe at the same time. How do you reconcile that? Well, I think this is Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This type of fear includes a recognition of our own futility of humanity. We are, before salvation, God's enemies. And the respect and honor that we need to give God. Think about the religious rulers. Go back to chapter 11. They don't need Jesus. We got it together. In fact, they're going to condemn Jesus and, and, and all of that, which shows no fear of God. No wonder they are seen as fools in the text. The fear of God, not only in our relationship with him, but it also then governs our interactions with one another. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of fear for Christ. Isn't that really interesting? The fear of the Lord drives our ethics. It strips back the veneer and it dismantles hypocrisy if we know, hey, the one we need to fear is God. Why? He tells us because this one, notice what he says in verse five, has the authority to throw you into hell. Or we, it's really Gehenna. It's the only time Luke uses the term in his gospel. Gehenna uh, was seen as the Valley of Hinnom. That's where the term comes from. You say, where's the Valley of Hinnom? Well, if you were standing in Jerusalem, it's on the south side primarily of the old city. It's where you burned your rubbish in the first century. It's in the Old Testament. It's where the Israelites offered up their children to Molech and sacrifice. And I love Daryl Bach's commentary. He says, the term Gehenna could not have been a more grisly or more dishonorable association. In other words, you're concerned about someone pulling out your fingernail? You need to be concerned where he will send you for all eternity. The torment is real, it's eternal, and we can see that elsewhere in Scripture, Revelation 20. It's not an annihilation. No, no, no. It's, it's a permanent dwelling. And we mustn't forget, in the midst of all of this, the Lord provides a means, doesn't he, to avoid Gehenna? The cross graciously provides a means to address sin. He did not forgive the Lord or accept sinners without first addressing the sin. God's grace is necessary and vital. 
I wrote, fearing the Lord understands that he will judge and punish those who do not turn to him. Self-absorbed resistance and independence can have fearful consequences, whereas compliance with God's way brings comfort and security. I don't know where you are this morning. There's a lot in this room. So I don't know where you are spiritually. What are you doing with Jesus? You can go kicking and screaming and think you have it all together. I got news for you. There's a day coming and this God you better fear because he will hold you accountable. He's provided you the means through the cross. And so the first call in this fearing God is, is this is the one who, who holds our eternal state. Secondly, and here's the good news, he's also the God who cares deeply. Did you catch this? Look at this. He says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Five sparrows selling for two acerons, which is equivalent to about one-eighth of a day's wage. If you're paid, I don't know, 12 bucks nowadays, it's, what, $80 an hour. But uh, <laughs> working at uh, various restaurants, the, the price keeps going up. But 12, let's say you do $12, or, um, $12 an hour, you're talking about 12 bucks. You know, what's the, what's the big deal? Well, this was the source of food for the poor. And, and Jesus said, I, I care for them. This is Kentucky Fried Sparrows, KFS. You know, if he cares for them, is he not gonna care for you? In fact, Matthew's counterpart, the parallel text, Matthew says, God knows even when they fall to the ground, he cares for them. But it's not just that, that he should care for the sparrows. It says he knows the number of hairs on your head. For some, that's a miracle, right? The average human head, I notice I said average, has 100,000 hairs. And the average person loses 50 to 100 hairs per day. And it takes two, the lifespan of a strand of hair is two to seven years. And our God knows all of this. And some of you, I realize, you're losing it faster than that, but... Uh, and the lice are picketing because of deforestation. But nonetheless, <laughs> our God is, he knows all these things. How foolish to think you can hide or speak in secret and the Lord doesn't know. If he knows about sparrows and he knows about the hares, does he not know all things? The God of universe is aware of every little bird, every little number of hairs on your head. Do you not think he cares for you? You who are made in his image, from you whom he gave his son. Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child? As you saw these mothers up here with their children. No, she can't. Does she have, doesn't she have compassion on the son of her womb? The answer is expected yes in the Hebrew. Then even these may forget, they might forget, yet this is God speaking, I will not forget you. Behold, I have graved you on the palms of my hands. That's our God. He says, I know you, you're mine. And, and so he says, what's the first key to overcoming hypocrisy in our lives? You need to fear God. That is not what we see with the religious rulers. Secondly, we need to confess Jesus Notice the text tells us in verse eight, whoever acknowledges me before men, the son of man, that is Jesus, will acknowledge before the angels or, or the, the members of the heavenly court when time comes. Either you accept or reject Jesus. There is no middle ground here, none. This is Jesus speaking, it's red letter. <laughs> 
He's very exclusive. There isn't a coexist bumper sticker on the wagon going to heaven. It doesn't work. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And, and, and so th- this public acknowledgement comes from a genuine faith, a deep longing for holiness, and a passion to exalt Christ. I mean, look at Peter and Judas. Both denied the Lord. But there's a huge difference. The text is very clear. Peter repented. Judas was solely just remorsed. Well, he was bummed that it turned out that way. Peter understood, I am a sinner and I deserve judgment. There's a vast difference between those two individuals as also seen in the text. And we are to confess the Lord. It's one of the ways to get past hypocrisy. I'm not hiding this. I stand for him. I love, again, I mentioned this last week, but I love that a theme of our missions conference is prepare to stand. That's what we are called to do. Third way to overcome hypocrisy is to depend upon the Holy Spirit. This leads us to verse 10, which is probably one of the most difficult texts in all of the New Testament to render. Look what it says. A word against the Son of Man, Jesus, will be forgiven, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Huh? What do you do with that? Aren't they one and the same? How do you, how do you handle this text? And so let's, let me give you a couple views. One is that attacking Jesus is one thing. This is one argument. But stating that his work is from Satan, that's addressing the Spirit. And so they, they even argue, well, one says speaking against the Son, the other is blasphemy, which is a much more horrific thing. So that's one argument. Mm, okay. Second one is that, no, 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 this is rejecting Jesus' earthly ministry versus the Holy Spirit who comes and inaugurates the church in Acts chapter 2 and the work of the Spirit in the church, and that's the problem. But I don't see the church here in the context at all. I think what's going on is the third view, which is held by many commentators. The blasphemy of the Spirit is not so much an act of rejection as it is a persistent and decisive rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. It is speaking of the totality of a person's response to the Spirit, not a single moment. Let me give you some support. First, Jesus distinguishes between his role and the Spirit. In fact, he says, you know, it's one thing that you hear my testimony, but those who witness to me, you better believe. Secondly, I think there's a connection with Isaiah 63, 10. They, the text states, the Israelites of the Exodus, sound familiar, rebelled and grieved, listen, this is Isaiah 63, grieved the Holy Spirit, therefore he turned to be their enemy and he himself fought against them. What is in view, Nolan writes in his commentary, is not a matter of blasphemous speech, but rather the denial or rejection to the manifest saving intervention of God on behalf of his people. The use of the Spirit is akin to the finger of God. You say, okay, Hoff, it is, I, follow, help me out here. What are we, what are we saying here? I, I would argue that if the Spirit's testimony is refused, then God's offer of salvation cannot be given. It, it, it's offered, but with, through the Holy Spirit's prompting in our hearts, if we do not respond, there's no other means for salvation. The religious rulers, at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit is prompting 
They know that, and yet they've rejected it. In fact, they're going to say, no, 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 it's not the Spirit working, it's Satan working. There is no other means unto salvation except through Christ. And it's the Spirit who is prompting in your hearts to respond. And the text tells us, at that point, to reject the Spirit's wooing, you'll not be forgiven. Because you have to respond to the message that has been given to you. I hope that makes sense. Again, let me just highlight, blasphemy of the Spirit is not so much an act of rejection as it is a persistent and decisive, that's the key word, rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. There's no other means. It's done. And so, Jesus says here, how do we overcome hypocrisy? You need to confess the Spirit. You need to lean into the Spirit because in verses 11 and 12, we see the role the Spirit will have in our lives. We come full circle don't we? We need to be sincere. We need to be transparent. We need to be genuine. And the Spirit comes in and assists. In fact, the answer that the Spirit gives us in the midst of it, it's sufficient, it's quickly obtained, and it's graciously given. Paul understood this because in Ephesians 6, he said to the church at Ephesus, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And he says in verse 19, for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul. I mean, how many times have you given the gospel message? You know the Old Testament inside and out. I mean, you were a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, you saw Jesus on the, the road to Damascus. God has worked in your life. You've written, you know, 13 letters in the New Testament. Come on, Paul. He says, I, I still need boldness. I need the Spirit to work in and through me. And so these are the keys, I would argue, that Jesus is laying out here. How do we overcome hypocrisy? Number one, we fear God. Not man, but God. Secondly, we confess Jesus publicly. And third, we lean into the Holy Spirit. There's some principles there in your notes. Let me give you three of these as we look. For those who revere God, they need not fear anything else. In Isaiah 41, the Lord says to his people, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Hear or fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I would argue the reasons many fears exist in people's lives today is because there's a little fear of God. We, this Puritan writer, Grinnell, writes, we fear men so much, men, women, because we fear God so little. Our fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. <laughs> no one wants to be made fun of, ostracized, demoted, or dinged. Worse yet, or befriended, or defriended on Facebook. Worse yet, we do not want to suffer, be persecuted, or even be put to death. That boss, that coworker, the teacher, perhaps even a spouse, can be very intimidating. But whom do we fear? We cannot replace God with people. Martin Luther said, of whom shall I be afraid? One with God is the majority. <laughs> Isn't that great? And so, we fear God. 
Secondly, our commitment to stand with Jesus reflects a trust in the Lord as both judge and provider. The fear of the Lord, careful, it doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. I sometimes hear that. What we're talking about is a reverential trust. It's an understanding that, that we are here to please and obey him. I mean, look at the book of Proverbs. We cited chapter 1 earlier, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But 13 times the book of Proverbs refers to fearing the Lord. It talks about it being the fountain of life, that which prolongs life, that which gives us strong confidence. That's what keeps us from sin and is the source of riches and honor. A sparrow doesn't doubt God. <laughs> In fact, no creature doubts God's care and provisions. Bobo isn't going to ask, hmm, why didn't God provide? Except the only creature, or, or the only one of God's creation, men and women, those that are most favored are the ones that doubt. What a sad indictment on we as humanity. We've been created in his image. And so this week when you see a bird flirting, flying, I don't know, through the air, be reminded of God's love and the provisions for you. Rest in his arms. He is the provider. He is the one who cares for us so deeply. And third in your notes, to say you honor the king, that is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, while failing to walk in obedience is to be guilty not only of hypocrisy, but of cosmic treason. Hypocrisy is often used to refer to those who are blatantly lived, uh, living in a way that contradicts the profession of their faith. But ultimately, hypocrites have only a love for themselves, don't they? And think about the religious rulers. Who are they concerned about most? Not God, themselves. And so, and they, they hide all of that under this bogus pie, piety. In fact, I would argue hypocrisy and narcissism are very close cousins. <laughs> Marshall, in his commentary, writes, inconsistency is deliberate, whereas in the former it may be a matter of blindness and self-deception or of willful refusal to obey God in a specific ways in which, while professing to obey him. How do you know if you're suffering from hypocrisy? Because it's hard to detect in ourselves. One way is to assess if you delight in the righteousness of the Lord. Do you have a desire to experience the holiness of Christ? Are you more concerned with others and in self-preservation and self-grandizement? The quote at the bottom of your notes, to fear God is to nurture an attitude of awe and humility before him. The one who can see all things, the one who knows all things, and walk in radical dependence on God in each area of life. The fear of the Lord is similar to the mindset of a subject before a powerful king. It is be under divine authority as one who will surely give account. Father, it's easy to point out hypocrisy in others' lives. <laughs> And to see it in the religious rulers as we read the Gospels, these, these individuals who knew the truth, who pontificated, who boasted of their good deeds, and yet 
as Jesus pointed out, they're just simply graves. The corpse is underneath and they've hided it with this facade. And so Lord, it's easy to see it in others and, and miss it in our own lives. Father, Lord, we want to be known as men and women who are sincere, who are genuine in our faith. The gospel has been harmed more times than not by Christians who are hypocrites. <laughs> and so, Father, we need to be genuine followers of you. Help us to fear you. Help us to proclaim your son's name and help us to lean into the Holy Spirit who you've entrusted to us, those who know your son as their savior. Lord, we thank you. We praise you in Jesus.